This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. In 1986, Charles Nichol traveled through Thailand to learn about the spiritual traditions of forest Buddhism. But things are not always so straightforward in Thailand. When Charles meets Harry, an old French Indochina hand, on the night train north with his tales of gem smuggling and opium smoking, it leads to a journey along the banks of the Mekong, into the Golden Triangle, and into Burma. Charles joins me today to talk about his adventures, story structure and travel writing, and about his book Borderlines, which is being republished by Elan this year. So now, here is Charles Nickel. Charles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeremy. Great to be here. So I'm excited to talk with you about your book Borderlines, which was originally published back in 1988, I believe. And now Eland are republishing it this year. So I would like to begin the conversation by asking you about a scene in the middle of the book. You and uh, a Frenchman named Harry are near the Mekong River and uh, a local guide named Appa, I believe, um, who took you guys on a small tour of the region, invited you back to his house to, to smoke a few bowls of opium. Uh, by, by way of introduction, uh, can you explain <laughs> what's going on here and... Uh, what you are doing in the region? Um, I'm following uh, the lead of the Frenchman Harry, who is someone I've met on, on the road, as it were. Um, and we're basically in the on the edge of the notorious Golden Triangle. So um, you say he's taking us, Appa is taking us on a little tour of the region. It's a bit of a clandestine tour. Um, to satisfy the curiosity of a visiting, uh, 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 well, as Harry would put it, a sniffer. A sniffer or snorter is a reporter. I'm not exactly a reporter, but I'm a travel writer, and I'm the kind of person who wants to be shown things. And in this case, we're looking at the very extensive and very beautiful sight of opium poppies waving gently in the breeze, stretching out before us across towards the Shan Hills of Burma, although uh, we are at that point well, we are probably by that point actually in Burma, not having crossed over any recognised border. So it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a special access, let's say, as the tour operators sometimes say, <laughs> into areas where most people don't get uh, much of a chance to to have a look at. And of course, in one sense, it's just a field of poppies, in, and in in one sense, one's crossed over a border that's absolutely invisible at that point. Mm-hmm. Yet there's a free song to it all, which I'm trying to capture in the book. And I suppose travel writing is in part a sort of attempt to um, get as many frissons per chapter as possible for the reader um, uh, by by doing that sort of thing. Right. So you'd mentioned uh, the Golden Triangle as being notorious. And obviously, we're talking about opium as well. Can you like, I guess, put some meat on that or unpack that a little bit? Why? What is the Golden uh, Triangle exactly geographically? And like, why is it so notorious? Or why was it so notorious back in the 80s? When you were there. Uh, the, golden, the Golden Triangle is a, 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 an area so-called because it, um, it, it touches on the borders of three countries, um, Thailand, China, and uh, uh, Burma. 
And uh, a large part of it is part of the Shan states of Burma. There's a lot of tangled politics here because, of course, the hill tribes of Burma or the northern Burma uh, uh, ethnic groups uh, uh, have fought a long and um, intermittently bloody war with the central government down in um, in well, what was then called Rangoon. And it's the area which most of the world's heroin at that point, we're talking back in the 1980s, most of the world's heroin came from, from the opium fields processed and um, shipped out to all the, um, all the points where uh, people were wanting to consume the material. So um, there's a, a lot of morality attached to anything to do with the drug trade. Mm-hmm. But at that point, mm-hmm. I'm an interested observer. Right. But you you didn't originally go to Thailand to, to smoke opium, <laughs> did you? Well, um, do you remember uh, what your original quest was going, going well, to the, the region? The, 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 the spark that lit the idea of this journey was actually um, back in the UK, probably in the uh, winter months of 1985, when I um, happened upon a, a program on the uh, BBC, a sort of educational, late night educational program about Buddhism. And it was particularly about uh, the tradition of the forest temple, in, uh, particularly in Thailand, other parts of Southeast Asia as well. And this is where the, the temple is not a great ornate uh, building full of monks, so much as a, a gathering of very um, Spartan shelters and uh, cabins right inside. Uh, uh, the forest uh, and the saying of the forest temple is the forest is the temple and um this spoke to me in, in all sorts of ways um your mind will become still like a pool in the forest said the venerable thai ajan or or uh, chief monk who was talking on this television program and um well i suppose if i'm going to be honest there's two sort of levels to a moment like that one is the spark that lights, a spark of interest, a spark of desire to go and find out something about this marvellous sounding tradition. And of course, you know, deep in the tropical forest, which is a place in itself that's very um, tonic to visit and think about. And there's the other more opportunist thought. I'm a professional writer. I had recently finished a book. I was looking for a subject for a new book. And the idea of travelling to Thailand and journeying up to a forest temple up in the north of uh, the the rather wild north of the country, seemed like a kind of pilgrimage that it would be very interesting and uh, would be a sort of fertile copy for a travel book. Mm-hmm. Back in the 1980s, one wrote travel books um, more um, uh, less complicatedly in a way than, than one might do now, uh, and that's perhaps something we might explore when I, when I say that. But... Um, that was uh, the kind of book I was writing then, or I've, or, although I've moved into other genres since. Um, so uh, this sounded like uh, a good journey, a good subject, uh, something that might indeed benefit me, might indeed um, improve me as a person, but also something that would be a good copy of a travel book. Mm. Yeah, but things don't always shake down as one expects, especially in travel, do they? Absolutely not. And uh, the old adage uh, in, in traveling and certainly in travel writing, it's not what you go looking for that counts, but what you find along the way. And this indeed did become a journey of many diversions, many side turnings, um, many uh, uh, detours that seemed to take me right off the track and in, into areas where we've just thought about the Golden Triangle. I certainly hadn't, hadn't intended to be. Um, checking out 
uh, the, the world's leading sort of uh, supply area of heroin uh, <laughs> on my way to Buddhist Enlightenment Forest Temple. But I suppose um, I could argue, or I might have argued at the time to myself, that I, it was a sort of Buddhist idea that you let the road take you where it goes, or you let the river take you where it flows. And um, a certain... Uh, well, what in another context is called negative capability, ability to stand back from making decisions and from trying to influence things and to let yourself be taken where experience or chance or serendipity leads you. So I wouldn't say that I was consciously thinking of it as an actual Buddhist experiment in um, side turnings and detours, but you could argue that in a way that's how it transpired. It was a pilgrimage that turned into a sort of road movement. Mm. Yes, uh, journey of diversions and detours. I actually flagged uh, something that you wrote in the book, and if you don't mind, I'll read it because I think it's uh, uh, it's it's great. It, it kind of highlights um, exactly what you're talking about. Early in the book, uh, you write, "I wasn't really here for stories. I was here to visit a forest temple to get my head together to write about the deep things in life. But in writing, as in much else, it's not what you go looking for that counts. It's what you find." And right now, what I'd found was Harry. So <laughs> Harry is is a guy that appears throughout the book um, and also his girlfriend along with Harry. So can you tell us a little bit about Harry? Um, how did you find him and what was so interesting about this man? Well, Harry, I, I met by chance on the night train north from Bangkok to towards Chiang Mai, which was the first sort of step of my journey. I'd been in Bangkok for a few days, but uh, I was really at the outset of my pilgrimage up to the uh, north of Thailand, and Chiang Mai is the town that you head for by the night train. Um, and uh, Harry was um, what one would essentially call a prospector, uh, a gem trader. Uh, he was, uh, as he himself liked to say, he was an old Indochina hand. He'd been around, he'd knocked around Southeast Asia for uh, several decades. I think I'm right in saying he first came there at age 15 with his father, uh, who was a half French, half Algerian, uh, Noir, as they call them, from the Algerian colony of France at the time. And um, he'd, um, he'd been a trader in Saigon, in uh, Vientiane, in Laos, and um, no doubt uh, I could go on listing the places where he had uh, a, a sort of uh, a places he could uh, spend the night uh, telex numbers as we had in those days that he could use <laughs> and so on. He was um, he was a man who was always on the road, a man who was a kind of nomad, uh, but his his job or his profession was uh, prospecting for uh, and um, buying and selling um, gems. Uh, he was particularly interested in finding a, a kind of gem called a star sapphire uh, and also other um, uh, precious, precious materials such as jade. So he was someone who immediately uh, you know, the sniffer, as it were, um, said, this is a guy who's got stories to tell. This is a guy who knows this terrain. Because, of course, the travel writer is often um, someone who's uh, a, a greenhorn. It's almost one of the um, the virtues of a travel writer. You're an, <laughs> you're an open book uh, in terms of the uh, learning about the um, the place you're in. Uh, and so you you need the Harrys and indeed the Katais, his Thai girlfriend, um, who was, uh, had 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 the local knowledge of being a Thai and also spoke good English and served 
as a very efficient um, interpreter for me. Uh, so, I mean, these were people who I, I thought both, there's a story here in them, uh, a day in the life of a Siamese sapphire trader. Uh, there's a journalistic sort of idea there for me, um, what makes a story in that sense. And also there's the further qualities of good people to travel with, people who'll take you somewhere. Um, so immediately you might think, ah, oh, the Forest Temple, well, the Forest Temple will be there, still be there. As in fact, Harry at one point said to me, don't worry, it'll still be there. <laughs> um, he had he had reasons he wanted me to travel with him. He needed to go off uh, do some business of his own. He wanted to look after his girlfriend while he was away. Um, uh, so we were traveling up into the north, and he'd show me a few things in return. So this is the kind of trade-off, this is the kind of um, instinct you have, that this is someone you want to hang out with. Of course, he was a bit of a a, a dark horse. Mad Dog was his uh, his nickname, um, back from the days in, Viet in Vietnam, not as a soldier, but as a trainer. And um, always with traveling, of course, with people, you realize you just don't know who you are traveling. So there's always that slightly that slight edge. People, are, uh, what you know about people is only what they told you. Uh, they they're free, as indeed you are, to kind of invent themselves. And uh, in some cases, that can be a fairly sinister sort of uh, situation. Yeah, from from the perspective of a writer uh, or or even a traveler, serendipity, following whims, and and taking risks seem to seems to pay dividends and and helps create interesting stories and what i like so much about your book charles is that there is a story there there is a tension right uh you early on as you just mentioned kind of uh temporarily abandon your quest to go to the forest temple and uh and in 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 pursuit of, of charles and and what would become his mission and also there's well-developed characters, um, you know, other than the author subject, right? The, the, the eye that we so often see in travel literature. And I, I think that is a bit unusual for a travel book. Uh, so gripping, uh, what makes your book so gripping? And it's why that it, I think it stands out. Uh, I've read many travel books this year and it, not many of them have kind of the story and the tension and the well-developed characters that, that we see in your book. So I was wondering if you could uh, maybe speak to that. You just referred to um, Charles as you know revealing himself to you. What you know about a character is what they reveal to you. But is there, um, I, I guess, any any thoughts about the state of story and character building and tension in travel books? Yes. Well, um, I'd say in one sense a journey is kind of story it unfold, unfolds like a kind of narrative that you are uh, sort of in at that moment so it's a sort of a story in 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 parts uh, the parts that are happening at the moment and then the parts that you're coming up to next so it's an unfolding story i always had that feeling on a, on a long journey i'm not thinking about a long trip but a long journey has a sort of narrative shape to it. of course you tidy it up when you get back to your desk at home um <laughs> because stories that fit neatly into that sort of uh, marvelous little rectangle called a book. Uh, you know, you, you can't contain all the bittiness and um, extraneous detail uh, of, uh, of the actual event. But, but broadly, there is a certain um, narrative flow to a journey. And the characters that you meet, uh, the, the revelations, the, the missed opportunities, the roads not taken, 
uh, all those sort of feelings. Um, I've written other genres, as I mentioned, um, I, I write biographies uh, and um, historical books. Um, there again, the idea of story is essential. Um, a biography, a life writing or a life story and history, the very word, of course, is exactly cognate with the word story. So, um, historia. Uh, so this idea of um, putting events into, into a, a form that moves forward, that evolves, is pretty fundamental to many kinds of writing. And of course, the unwritten uh, genre, sorry, the unmentioned genre that I haven't yet uh, broached is the novel. Mm-hmm. And all those genres I mentioned, those non-fiction genres, do, of course, borrow from the techniques of the novelist. Um, and there's a sort of tension in there, of course, between uh, the desire to tell a story and the desire to tell it as it really happened. And that's true both of travel writing and of historical writing or biographical writing. Um, to borrow the tricks and techniques of the novelist, but to remain were uh, closely tied to the actual evidence or the actual documentary truth. And there are little compromises along the way, let's say, little bits of salt and pepper that might get added to the dish. (laughs) (laughs) But the ingredients, certainly in this book, were pretty much as they happened, just kind of shaped a little by the author uh, in his wisdom back home afterwards. Um, Another way of thinking of a journey is it's like a dream. And when you get back home, you're suddenly awake trying to make sense of it all. So it's a retrospective story to some extent, but um, sticking pretty closely to the events. Uh, You know, I I take a notebook, I take a a small tape recorder, I take a camera. So one tries to record exactly what people said or reconstruct it as soon as possible afterwards into one's notebook. I don't actually like to write in a notebook while I'm talking to someone. But, um, you know, so... Later, perhaps you have to approximate one of the conversations. Um, coming back to the book after 35 years, I found a bit of a problem with the way I'd sort of transliterated the talk of Katai, who spoke very good English, but a sort of broken sort of pidgin English to some extent. It, it, it's, it, 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 probably, it was probably pretty authentic, but it, it somehow sounded a bit patronizing. I didn't know whether to change it. I didn't change it in the end. But um, you, you never quite know how you're going to, you're representing real people is another factor in this. You're not inventing characters. I've never invented characters in the sense I've never written a novel. Um, And people have their own, you know, their own privacy, their own um, rights, as it were. Uh, I change names, but uh, other than that, I try to paint them pretty much as I saw them. But I think I say somewhere at the preface of the book, um, this is, uh, something of what I felt and what I saw, and I, I make no other claims for it as a um, true portrait of a country or indeed of those particular people. Mm-hmm. That subjective truth. Uh, I want to circle back to something that you just uh, mentioned, uh, and it wasn't. I, I'm asking you again because I, I guess the audio cut out, but you said that you were coming back to the book for its republication, and that you were tempted to change some of the dialogue by Katai, but. Did you say that you didn't change it? I did say that I didn't judge Jeremy, okay. yes. I mean, well, I might, might have tinkered with a little bit of it, but um, I just felt, I, I don't know. I mean, the, things change, and one of the things that might have changed is sensibilities about the way you represent foreign cultures or particularly uh, what we used to call the developing world cultures. Um, uh, and my previous book to this was uh, about Colombia um, and particularly about the uh, small-time drug smugglers on the northern coast of Colombia and their lives. And again, I had that sort of 
problem looking back at it. I haven't actually done a new edition because um, I'm glad to say it's still in print in its original form. But um, that sense that you kind of maybe are caricaturing slightly or might be sounds like the caricaturing slightly or you're stereotyping. And I thought maybe the, 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 the sort of pidgin English, which, as I say, Katai did indeed speak very good English, but with that sort of slightly pidgin uh, syntax, um, sounded like you're making a bit of a, a, a sort of comic stereotype. Um, I hope that's not what the reader will feel. And I, I probably felt at this distance it wasn't, um, it wasn't going to be very successful if I sort of cleaned it up in that sort of way. And I haven't tried to clean up the attitudes <laughs> that might lie behind it because it is a book that, was, that is part of its, uh, its time. Right. And so I guess you know, I, I didn't get the sense that it was patronizing or you know, off, yeah. off color. Um, but I, I, I can see your concern and I can see how people might, might read into that. Um, and, and, you know, with, you know, people getting fired <laughs> and canceled for what they've uh, written decades and decades ago. Um, I can see why uh, you're concerned about it, but yes, uh, I, th- I think it's a sort of, um, it's a sort of sense of respect that is quite correctly. And I'm very glad to say it was sort of, has increasingly crept in, although the sort of policing of the frontiers can be a little bit <laughs> yeah. over, uh, over heavy. But um, I'm conscious, you know, that a lot of the, what travel writing um, did at that time uh, was uh, could be summed up in a, a search for the picturesque. And uh, the picturesque is perhaps a, a quality that's sort of uh, been rather correctly sort of um, devalued or, or, or questioned uh, more recently. The, the picturesque, uh, as I've said somewhere else, uh, picturesque is a, a, an aesthetic that's often based on other people's inconvenience. In other words, the picturesque <laughs> is often uh, an idea of how um, uh, attractively um, photogenic or, 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 or um, attractively good copy um, poverty is. Right. And it's just to say nothing about it being uh, dishonest from the perspective uh, of literature for you to have gone back and kind of, you know, whitewashed <laughs> what you originally wrote, right? And there's a no, absolutely right. No, I didn't want to do that, and it was only a purely aesthetic thing about that, um, mainly aesthetic thing about how that was sounding the dialogue with Katai and some of the other Thai people that one does did try to. I did try to represent it in that broken English way, and. I hoped it wasn't sounding like I was taking the mickey a bit, but I don't think it did. And no, I I, I didn't at any point really try to um to whitewash or sanitize or deodorize <laughs> the the whole experience. Yeah, uh, there's a, I, I went to Twitter and I asked um, just some of my followers whether or not uh, they had any questions uh, to to pose to you. And uh, Keith uh, asked if you'd been back to the region since the '80s and. If you could, I don't speculate or speak to how the same journey uh, that you took back then, not just creeping into Burma, but also Thailand, how how that journey might be different after 40 years. Yes, um, the answer to that is that I have been back, although not that recently. So um, I did go back, in fact, to write a, a, a story about the disappearance of the Thai silk king, Jim Thompson, which was one of the stories that was around when I was first there in 86, because uh, he had disappeared without trace. I don't know if you're familiar with the story or no. your listeners are, but uh, he was a very, uh, very uh, prominent um, American uh, businessman there in Thailand, but very much um, liked and revered because he, he lived a Thai life and he uh, built a beautiful collection of Thai art and so on. Uh, and he disappeared without trace one day in the Cameron Highlands of Malaysia in 1967. And there was a mass of speculation 
about what might have happened to him and indeed about his past and possible CIA connections. So on the 25th anniversary of his um, disappearance, I um, did a long article about it. Uh, so I did um, I did return and, of course, well, Thailand had moved on. Uh, I'd moved on, but more particularly Thailand had in terms of how I might have thought about the book. But that was um, only a few years later. Since then, I'm sad to say I haven't really been back. Um, I, I, I would love to, but of course, there's also the feeling hmm, about traveling. I mean, uh, you now tend to think it's better to preserve your memories and um, right. go somewhere else or not go anywhere at all, as we're doing at the moment. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't like travel writing at the moment, Jeremy, is probably one reason why I'm, I'm sounding a bit of an armchair figure now. Um, my, 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 my subjects tend to be um, historical, and uh, although I follow them sometimes in, in quite distant places, but that's a different kind of travel, uh, following footsteps, as it's right. called. Right. Um, coming back to this question about uh, story and, um, and character, character you'd mentioned uh the novel and you know your your book has a very novel-like quality to it in in the sense of character and story and tension and foreshadowing and these kind of literary devices that we come to expect in, in the novel and i think that's part of the reason why i enjoyed it uh, so much your book um but since you men- mentioned the no- novel um are, are there any I guess specific techniques that you borrow from the novel, from from fiction, um, that you apply to your nonfiction, to uh, Borderlines, or the, what is it? The other book is the Fruit um, Fruit Palace. Fruit Palace. Are there any yeah. techniques from the novel that you borrow? Well, um, I suppose the better way to answer that than are there any techniques? There are some influences uh, okay. of writers, and I, I, I probably feel I get influenced by writers. Um, for a, for a particular book, I uh, get carefully monitor, as it were, the influences. Um, <laughs> so The Fruit Palace was more sort of Hunter Thompson, perhaps, mm-hmm. and um, that whole idea of uh, gonzo journalism. I mean, The Fruit Palace isn't quite that because I'm an Englishman and I'm Englishman and never quite gonzo. But <laughs> um, I mean, gonzo as in the, the, the foregrounding of the writer as a sort of character, a rather hapless character mixed up in the story that he's writing, and um, a certain sort of higher octane sort of style. For the fruit, for the borderline, for borderlines, um, I think one of my um, main sort of inspirations for the sort of mood of the, uh, and the novelistic mood uh, was uh, Graham Greene's The Quiet American, mm. which is set in Taiwan, of course, but uh, is an Indochina book, uh, a very subtle uh, evocation of the of the sort of the Englishman seduced into the reveries of uh, uh, well opium, but uh, of the uh, of the, the East in general. Um, of course, um, some some travel writers do uh, do address this whole idea of the novelistic uh, in their writing. There's a very fine travel writer; he's dead now, but Wiesiad um, Kapuczynski. A Polish foreign correspondent that also did some marvelous travel writing, and he used to describe travel writing as literature by foot. Uh, and he said, um, "He said you've experienced this event on your own skin, and it's this experience, this feeling along the surface of your skin, that gives your story its coherence." So the idea that he's getting there, and I think that's right, is that you you can write it like a novel, but it's got to be authentic by it's having been lived out by you. 
and that that communicates itself to the reader. And so the novelistic techniques really uh, are the same as the biographer's techniques, the sort of ways of creating a recognizable character within a few paragraphs, let's say. And it's just a question of observation and, um, uh, and well, I suppose a little bit of insight or a little bit of guesswork in the case of characters you read traveling. Um, and um, I don't know that there's any sort of particular techniques of the novel that I'd isolate uh, as being, but just that idea you can try and, I guess it's a sort of empathy or sympathy. You're trying to sort of feel how that person might, how it might feel inside that person's skin uh, uh, and um, uh, imagining by, by, by talking the, with them sort of where they're coming from, to use the phrase that I'm sort of used in those days. Mm-hmm. And, and what about, you know, the job of creating tension and keeping the reader interested in, in the story? And I'm going to probably censor or bleep some of this out, but, you know, um, we can talk about it freely here and I'll, I'll bleep out or censor any yeah. um, spoilers uh, because this is a book that I'm afraid to speak about because, you know, there, there are spoilers into, in, in the book and you can't say that about a lot of travel books, right? And I think that's what makes this one so interesting. So you meet up with Harry and, you know, he, you follow him and you, you, you go off um, – and abandon your original quest. And later, do you learn that he's uh, interested in, in and also he has uh, interest in, in um, and this is something that we don't learn about until later when Katai, the tension that, you know, goes through the book is that um, whether or not you're going to go back to the for that you're going to go to the forest temple, right? What is Harry really up to? What is what is going on with Harry? And there's this kind of sexual tension uh, with Katai um, that doesn't really get resolved until the end of the book. So, um, and there's this just excellent tension throughout the whole story. So, what 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 do you think about tension in storycraft as it relates to a travel book? Um, I, I think probably what you're calling tension, and I'm glad you're calling it that because, you know, a bit of tension is what keeps the reader <laughs> turning the page. But it's really um, perhaps more, it's something that's in every kind of writing. I mean, I, my, my training, if I can call it that, was as a journalist. And, you know, you write a piece of journalism, I'm not talking about a short news, but a piece of feature journalism. There's tension in that as to what, what you sort of reveal when and uh, you know, what you what you deploy in this paragraph as opposed to keeping it back to later on because it'll make more of an impact then there's pacing there's um, selecting your material um and then of course in a journey uh the chronology is such that you know that tension is there in the reality of the journey uh those those discoveries that come later in the book about harry and indeed the sort of how mm, sort of feelings towards katai are going to resolve themselves um those were unknowns until that later point of the journey. Uh, indeed, the, the discovery about what Harry was up, you know, it was kind of uh, a, a, a bit of a bombshell. Um, although you know, I'm not taking any moral lines on what Harry did to earn a crust, but um, uh, so the the tension is uh, is built into experience, certainly built into travelling, in terms of the veiled nature of what's around the corner. 
And um, I'm glad you found that I had managed to get that into the book, but I don't think it, I'd call it a, a sort of technique or a particular um, uh, stylistic trick, as it were, but it's in the very nature of narrative and what gets revealed later on than um, what doesn't, uh, what, what's, uh, what you know about to begin with. It's a sort of, it's in itself a journey, the, the story, of course, the story is a kind of journey. Um, the great S.J. Perelman, um, humorist and screenwriter for Marx Brothers and so on, said that the, the every film was made out of a basic three-act structure. In the first act, you get the characters up a tree. In the second act, everyone throws stones at them. In the third act, you get the characters back down off the tree. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the books, uh, travel books and other books, sort of have a similar kind of evolving of basic sort of um, basic scenario, basic sort of... Uh, uh, Increasing awareness of what might be happening as as it as it as it evolves and as it um, reveals itself. So it's revelations, um, and uh, the, the the detour uh, sort of had, as it were, more revelations than my actual final achievement of <laughs> a few weeks in the Buddhist forest temple, which is actually wonderful, but which I I, I, I sort of feel I, I I didn't learn as much as I did. Through, through my own fault, uh, as I did from uh, knocking around with the dodgy Harry and the mercurial Katai. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you you mentioned that. My next question uh, was gonna was was going to um, kind of touch on some of these uh, topics, right? Um, if the stories happen to the traveler, or are are they in some ways cultivated at the desk? Um, you, you kind of mentioned that uh, or t- touched on that earlier. Um, saying that it is kind of a combination of, of the two, right? Uh, the the travel book is a um, an artifact where the author traveler is the expert of a subjective experience that that they have, and they try to kind of form or fashion that into something interesting after the travel is all done. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I'd say that's exactly what happens. Um, and that doesn't sort of question the authenticity of the uh, of the account. It's a question of craftsmanship, I suppose. Not to not to sound too fancy about what one does. Um, it's it's um, it, it, it's the equivalent of a painter coming back with a load of sketches in his sketchbook and um, a, 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 and then turning them into a, a, a much larger or more sort of complex painting. Well, not more complex, but finding what's in them and turning it into a, a more detailed and more um, crafted painting. So the, the, what, what you're doing while you're there is keeping a lot of notes and, uh, and from time to time when necessary, doing a bit of audio, taking photographs, of course. So you're recording all the time. You're not in a way, well, you're following your instincts as to what, where the story might be taking you, but you're not sort of um, consciously... Um, setting up a sort of calendar of interesting events um, so much as following that um, that trail that you're on and um, keeping as much of detail and as much of uh, impressions and as much of um, as as much can keep it vivid getting that down into your notebooks and then the job of brushing it all down and stitching it all together and buffing it and kneading it like pastry though is mm-hmm. is what you do uh arduously and uh, you know the, the bit that's not such fun actually is when you get back to your desk <laughs> and um, hack away at it and um in a way find out what the story is 
in, in the process of doing that. They, they say that every book is um, an exercise in solving the problem of how to write that particular book. And um, I certainly think that's true about this book. Um, I'd never been in Southeast Asia before, so I'd had to learn a whole sort of vocabulary, a personal vocabulary of how to sort of deal with it, you know, how to how to express it in a way that was personal to me. Uh, you know, document getting the, the facts and documentary sort of aspects to it, right? But um, finding a, a, a tone to express it, a voice, uh, maybe is the word. Uh, it's very different from the book that I wrote about Colombia, because Thailand and Colombia are very different places. I'm the same person, but even so, Charlie of Root Palace and Charlie of <laughs> Borderlands is a slightly, Charlie's a little more reflective and a little less gung ho, and um, worries a bit more. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um so you find out all those things or you work on all those things back then i guess it came out in 88 well i came back from thailand in in april 86 so it took um, over two years between arriving back uh, on home soil and actual publication so you know that and that was quite a quick book although it's not a long book so others have taken longer so I'm quite a slow writer, which is, um, you know, where I've departed from journalism is um, <laughs> book writing is a, a, a long and um, a kind of finicky process, pinnickety. You, you have to make a lot of little uh, decisions in order to get the big picture right. Mm-hmm. I like the artist sketchbook uh, analogy. And I think, you know, any anyone that's interested in writing a travel book, I think would would do well by kind of reading your book and, and studying it as a as an exemplar of sto- storytelling in the genre. Um, so Well, that, that's very kind of you to say that, Jeremy, and I hope that that, that, that would be uh, fruitful for them. Uh, certainly, I think sketchbook is uh, exactly the idea of what you want to come back with, a, a notebook full of verbal sketches that have the vividness of that moment and the detail, because the detail is what you get. You'll, you'll always remember people uh, as they travel sometimes make a mistake of keeping a diary, oh, I, I don't want to call it a mistake, that's maybe what they want to do, but a diary records a chronology of the journey rather obsessively, let's say. Whereas the one thing you're not going to forget is, you know, you went there and then you went there and then you went there. What you are going to forget is the colour of a guy's shirt as he was talking to you, uh, the gold tooth glinting in the sun, the particular signboard, the particular music that was on the jukebox as you were talking. You know, those are the little details. Okay, you won't use um, to extent of them. But that, that, they're what you want to capture, uh, and the insights that you might get that night as you're writing it up, uh, your memories of that day, your memories of what someone actually said. So again, get them down, and then those are your sketches that you can work your picture up from. Just to, just to unpack this a little bit more, um, you're saying that there's a difference in the way that you and perhaps other people keep records of their trips, and there's on the one hand a diary where it's a it's kind of like a day-to-day account of what you did and what you saw and how you felt and all of that stuff. But on the other hand, there's another type of note-keeping which focuses on details, uh, golden tooth, blue shirt, uh, the way exactly. in which someone yeah. speaks and their mannerisms. And, yeah. and then you just like, think, fill it in I later. Think, yeah, I, I think that's right. Of course, I'm not wishing to, you know, to, to um, dictate any particular technique for getting your memories stored, a diary maybe is a way to do it. But I find diaries tend to maybe a little bit or can devolve a bit into what I did and where I, you know, what I did after breakfast that morning and then what I did that evening. Um, and um, my idea is more, I suppose, vignette uh, sort of recordings. 
I often find particularly valuable when I got back is a usually a rather scrunchy, sort of dusty little uh, collection of of torn out bits of paper in which I've recorded things I've been seeing out of a bus window on a long journey. The bus window sort of vignettes, they, they might just get thrown in anywhere in your story. That's the other thing you can uh, mix and match a little bit in that sense. Um, you know, something uh, something vivid and slightly surreal or exotic or just charming or funny that you've spotted outside a, a, out of a bus window, for example, or overheard in a restaurant. You can throw those in anywhere. <laughs> they're, um, they're, you know, like in the big painting you've done from your sketchbook, you can put the, that, that, you can put that hat on anyone in the painting. <laughs> right. Like, so yeah. they are a store of, of local color to use. Well, you know, one's tending back towards the picturesque, having dissed the picturesque. But, but um, you know, they're a store of local color and of, give again, a kind of authenticity. That, 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 that's, that, that um, literature by foot, the, the event you experienced on the surface of your skin, what you just spotted, that momentary thing, and it'll be gone again in a moment. That's why the bus window vignettes are actually scribbled down on the bus with all the bumps of the road <laughs> recorded in the almost illegible script. <laughs> yeah, and to, to extend the artist sketchbook analogy, it seems like what you're referring to is, uh, you know, how an artist may do kind of figure studies or studies of anatomy where they, I don't know, draw a hand in 50 different positions and uh, or draw an eye in just a series of eyes to, to learn how to draw an eye. You would capture those details and then later kind of you know use yes. those experiences use, to... use them they become a, they become a repository as it were they become a sort of dictionary that you can dip into um yes i mean the great leonardo da vinci uh, spotted in milan by someone who said he always had a little leather book hanging from his belt that's his sketchbook you know down it went his sketchbook words or, or sketches and they went and later they get they get sort of um mulched down and out they come in the form of those great masterpieces but of course i'm not setting up <laughs> one's travel writing in the same breath as the uh, works of leonardo da vinci but the, that idea that um even even an artist of that stature he, his raw material is well as you said his um, anatomical drawings which are more carefully studied but also those momentary vignettes he just sorts to capture something either with a few lines drawn or with a few lines of uh, impenetrable um, 16th century Italian. Mm-hmm. Charles Nickel, learning a lot from you here. Um, what other books do you have being published uh, by Elan this year? And uh, if you could just close us out and let us know where we can find you online. Yes, um, on the online front, I'm afraid I'm a bit of a sort of lurker on the uh, on the <laughs> edges of cyberspace. Uh, <laughs> You know, I'm I, I'm there. I'm, I, I'm I'm an honorary professor at Sussex University, so that, uh, Google finds an email. Uh, that's about as good as I can get. I'm afraid I'm not on Facebook. I don't have a website, and my Wikipedia entry is badly in need of repair. But um, uh, the first question was yes. Uh, also coming out from Eland just now, uh, a reprint of a book that uh, uh, was published in 1997, and that is a book about the French poet Arthur Rimbaud. And his years as a trader and indeed gun runner in Africa. Rambo is a, a hero from way back in my teenage years. Um, probably the first thing I knew about him was that he was Bob Dylan's favourite poet. So that was a pretty good start. And um, thereafter, discovering, in fact, Harry in Borderlines 
uh, or the character that I named Harry, uh, was someone who reawoke my interest in Rambo because Harry was a great one quoting Rambo. Um, and he was a remarkable teenage poet. He gave up writing around about the age of 20, uh, as it were, metaphorically anyway, burned his books and burned his boats and became a sort of nomadic uh, traveler after that. And he spent 11 years, the last 11 years of his life, out in East Africa. And so that's what my book is about, the sort of lost years of Rambo. Uh, and um, it, it's another kind of travel book in the sense that as well as being biographical, it's very much a tracing of his steps or a following of his steps. His steps, I might add, that he makes every effort to cover so that someone like me 100 years later can't follow them. Uh, he died in 1891. So um, I was out there in Aden, Djibouti, Hara in southern Ethiopia and Somalia um, on the hundred around about the hundredth anniversary of his of the centenary of his death. Um, he's a a sort of rock and roll hero as well as Bob Dylan and a, a number of other artists of that caliber like Patti Smith and, uh, and Van Morrison have, um, have anyway referenced him <laughs> in their songs and uh, through the beats of Los Kerouac and Co loved him and. Um, so he's sort of reinvented by every generation, and mine was the sort of rock and roll Rambo. Of course, now I'm, um, you know, a, a, a greyhead. Uh, I, I should have got over this business of uh, having heroes, but um, I was very glad to go back to my book on Rambo, add a few, um, because with a historical or biographical book, of course, one one does have to update because things have been discovered since uh, the book came out 25 years ago. Um, in fact, in the case of Rambo, who's who kept um, to say he kept a low profile would be a, a, a wonderful um, understatement. He was a very um, secretive and sort of um, elusive character. Um, but uh, out of the, the when I wrote the book first, there were a grand total of three photographs of him in East Africa, all of which were self-portraits taken with his own camera within a day or so of each other in 1883 in uh, Hara in Ethiopia. Uh, that sum uh, of three port three uh, uh, photographic portraits has now been now risen to five. So two others I had to discuss, or I was glad to be able to discuss and include in the book. And uh, another photograph recovered not from his African years, but a wonderful portrait of Rambo in communard uniform during the commune uprising, the revolutionary uprising in Paris in 1870, where one knew he had been uh, because of uh, written evidence, but um, someone spotted him, undoubtedly him, in, a, in an old photograph by a sort of photojournalist today, and very kindly communicated to me, a poet himself, Aidan Dunn. So I, I thank him profusely, and that photograph for the first time is included, the uh, first time in a book it appears in the new edition of my book. It's called Somebody Else, uh, which is a quotation from um, a wonderful uh, teenage poet pronunciation, uh, pronouncement by Rambo which goes in French, je ai un autre, which you translate as I is somebody else. <laughs> so syntactically pretty wild. And the idea that he was on the, on the uh, uh, trail of becoming a different person entirely, uh, losing himself, losing his Frenchness, losing, becoming uh, like a native, as they would have said in those days, uh, learning Arabic, trading in frankincense and musk and gold and ivory and in guns. Of course, there was a little bit of um, doubt in my mind again, rather like we've mentioned about borderlines as to whether attitudes have changed and one ought to change with them because some of what he was doing 
could now be regarded as, in a colonial sense, pretty um, uh, 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 tasteless. Um, but again, I didn't really, um, I, 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 I perhaps um, sort of modified one or two statements or added one or two writers. Uh, I argue passionately that he's definitely not, as he has sometimes been accused of, uh, involved in any slave trading. And I continue to hold that view. But um, nonetheless, he was um, not exactly at any point in his life politically correct. And one could certainly say that of his teenage years as he um, downed absinthe and smoked hashish and ruined the lives of uh, several people of both sexes who came into contact with him. Um, but probably you can't say that too much of his life as a trader and explorer. But it, it, it's a wonderful story. And um, I'm very glad to have it back out in a handsome new edition. I look forward to, I haven't read that yet. I look forward to reading that and also the Fruit Palace. And, and by the by, the by, it seems it's it's telling <laughs> now uh, that or, or why Harry liked Rambo so much. <laughs> yes, well, exactly. Yes, you can see Rambo was part of his, um, part of his sort of character was constructed out of, out of sort of uh, <laughs> characters like that. Yes. Um, and sort of philosophies like that. He was a nomad himself appreciated Rambo, the, the one who is always leaving, always becoming, uh, always heading the au-delà, the, the, the beyond. And so, yeah. And um, yes, Harry was a, very much a product of his uh, of a certain culture of the 60s that revalued people like Rambo. Uh, he threw the I Ching an awful lot. Right. <laughs> he believed in, uh, you know, karma, the code of the road, as he called it. Uh, and he traveled very light. He who travels light laughs in the robber's face, as he would call it. Well, uh, we're about out of time here. So thank you so much, Charles, for coming on the podcast to talk about uh, the uh, new edition of Borderlines and also giving us a little uh, insight or sneak peek into uh, the other book about Rambo. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Jeremy. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support. <laughs>